0: yo what's up dr swole here md bodybuilder back with another episode on swole radio today i'm joined again by dr eric helms who is infamous infamous on this podcast now and you know you all know that i have a soft spot for this guy he's a pillar in our field and now a new federation record holder <laughs> <laughs> that's right thank you for having me back on and yes i am the
1: uh I don't like to brag but I, I i i just you know it's it's rare that you get to be a the 2021 uh helms garage nationals champion in every uh weight category age sex division that, that they have which was only one and that was the 93.7 kilo class Insane. so uh yeah you know i want to thank uh my mom god couldn't have done it without the team you know all, all the standard tropes so it was, it was good times <laughs>
0: Yeah, awesome to see and uh, yeah today we're going to be talking about the last sort of segment in our staircase of training priorities and that is going to be intensity and rep ranges. So we're going to touch on uh, intensity relevant uh, relative intensity, including failure training and then go on to some talk about rep ranges all for hypertrophy so everyone trying to maximize those gains. So yeah, just starting off, I was thinking we could just briefly touch on sort of your current thoughts on optimal training intensities and relative intensity for hypertrophy training specifically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, what has been pretty well established in the last, well, really, if you look at the research like decades, uh, but I think what's become translated into practice and understood in the trenches in addition to being collated and generally become the consensus in the research is that there's a pretty broad range of uh, loading zones we can use there's the idea of there being a like a hypertrophy rm zone that's traditionally you know six to twelve eight to twelve six to fifteen somewhere in there, um, is really more of a practical zone Rather than a like the required zone or where you know it, it optimizes hypertrophy zone for some reason directly related to the number of reps. Um, what it really comes down to is does the set last long enough and provide sufficient stimulus during it. So uh, we've we've pretty well established that if if you're doing at least five or six reps and the set is hard um, and it's not really 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 high rep, each individual set will be on equal footing in terms of like global outcomes in hypertrophy. There's more nuance than that. But what that effectively means is that you can prescribe anywhere from say like six to 30 reps uh, for any given set. Um, And my general thoughts on well, which relative intensity should I use? Should I be using, you know, 40% of 1 RM or should I be using 85% of 1 RM? Should I be doing six or should I be doing the the 30 rep set? Uh, I think that very much comes down to what are you adapted to? uh what exercise are we talking about um and then how does it interact with other variables like proximity to failure total volume exercise order and things like that Um, so a couple things to consider it probably makes sense to not train in just a really narrow rep range Um, right now we have some i would say conflicting but overall leaning towards uh, the uh, the concept of that that being in a narrow rep range is probably inferior, at least long term, for hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh there's been many proposals for why you wouldn't just want to train eight to twelve, but maybe you do some sixes and here's so maybe you do some twenties. Uh the, the most often thing cited kind of in the bodybuilding world is the idea of getting different hypertrophy in type one or type two fibers. So fast for slow twitch preferential hypertrophy. This is shown very inconsistency, inconsistently. And if it is a, uh, an outcome, it's pretty minor. Uh, the only studies where I've seen it occur with pretty convincing, um, you know, consistency as well as to a large magnitude is taking like power lifters and then throwing them into like high rep BFR training middle mm-hmm. of the block, something they're very unaccustomed to. Um, so I think the average bodybuilder is probably not going to get a whole lot out of doing like a a low load versus a high load uh training cycle with vastly different rep ranges in terms of actual preferential type one or type two fiber growth Um, Mm. but it may do a little little something and we have the proof of concept that if you're like a power lifter for example and you've been training very very specifically for your sport you might have uh you know some gaps that could be filled so that's typically not your average bodybuilder unless you had a very very dogmatic approach to training on one end of the spectrum prior to some point. Um, some other lines of mechanistic research that, uh, you know, so, some don't show this, but there's a fair amount that do that when you use low load training versus high load training, some of the actual uh, anabolic signaling pathways are a little bit different. Uh, so even though we might see similar hypertrophy in volume equated studies longitudinally, uh acutely they may occur via slightly different pathways. So it would make logical sense to try to get some maybe arguably complementary, uh, you know, uh, different, different loading zones. Um and then finally there's a practical argument. If you always train in that say like five to 10 loading zone, you like lifting heavy, um, that's great, you know, it encourages progressive overload. You'll be able to gauge proximity to failure better because you're starting closer to failure when you can only do five or six or 10 reps. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh you know so that kind of takes care of the effort side of the equation however you're also going to see increased you know forces through your joints and loading and maybe higher injury rates i don't mean that to be alarmist the injury rates are still like lower than something like basketball Uh, but when we look at the injury rates in bodybuilding and compare them to strength sport bodybuilding typically has lower injury rates so if you take a very like heavy load training approach for a long time you know, you, you might be worth deloading that for practical reasons to give yourself, uh, you know, a break on the joints. However, on the other side of the equation there, we have data where you compare people doing like sets of 20 or 30, uh, to sets of like six to eight. And depending on the exercise, of course, uh, and of course, depending on proximity to failure, those higher rep sets typically elicit less enjoyment and higher, uh, sessional RPE. So the the puke factor, you know, that's why they call them widow makers, right? Doing 20 set, (laughs) or 20, sorry, 20 rep sets of squats. So I think against high rep sets. (laughs) Exactly, you know? So, uh, you know, maybe that's the strength athlete in me speaking, but um, now, obviously like, if you told me to do a high rep set of lateral raises, that's very different than doing a high rep set of like hack squats or something. Oh yeah. So so anyway, we have like basically converging lines of evidence, very, very small effect for preferential uh, fiber type hypertrophy, uh, different signaling mechanisms, uh, different experiences, and then different types and amounts of fatigue per set that would all suggest, hey, it's not a bad idea to train across the spectrum of loading ranges for the quote unquote hypertrophy zone, which we've now discovered is way bigger than 8 to 12, but more like, you know, 6 to 30 or 6 to 40
0: hmm yeah no I think that's a really good uh treatment of the topic and I think that there are a few kind of factors to weigh in on either side which you've covered very well um actually coming back to the fiber type thing I mm-hmm. know we brought up at one point uh we've talked about this before about how you know like different muscle groups and different exercises can respond better to different rep ranges um how much do you think that the fiber type plays in in terms of say loading specific muscle groups um and how how would people know for their own composition yeah i i don't think it actually
1: plays a huge role Mm -hmm. um you know and and there is so there's a lot of muscles in the body which are very mixed and even if you are an outlier um first you really have no way to really like definitively assess that Um, the closest thing we have are like so like amraps you know 80 percent of one rm and if you get high reps you're probably more slow twitch if you get low reps but there's a very high variability in those types of tests uh, i wouldn't consider them scientifically valid um if you just came off of a high rep training block or a low load up training block you would be, think you were one or the other it would influence the, the noisiness of that so it's not a very reliable test um i'm not suggesting people get biopsies because then even if you do the question is, well, what do I do about it? You know, like some really old school kind of uh, what I would argue are illogical approaches. Well, hey, if you are slow twitch, therefore you should do a lot of high rep training mm-hmm. and and volume and higher reps. And that doesn't really like make any sense to me. Like that would mean that endurance training would be the ultimate training for someone who's more slow twitch. Mm. and That's not true. It just means you're, you're going to be good at it. I think the best way to think of it is that for power and in, in muscular endurance, um, your fiber type can influence the ceiling of your adaptations, but if you want to be a bodybuilder, rather, regardless of your initial genetics. You're going to want to train for hypertrophy, you know, and, and a pretty similar way to everyone else. Um, you will need to train with a sufficient level of effort, you might find you can do more reps at a given relative load than others on certain muscle groups or for maybe most exercises, but you're still going to need to, to put in that work. Um, some differences you might find, however, um, are that, uh, there is some preliminary data that people who are more slow or fast, twitch dominant in their fiber composition seems to have, uh, different experiences of how much muscle damage they incur and how long fatigue lasts. Mm. Um, I don't think it is the largest component to that. And I don't think it's something you can necessarily know or infer. You can't work backwards and be like, oh, I take a long time to recover, therefore. You know, I'm I'm fast twitch or something like that. Mm. And ultimately you make a decision based on the outcome. If you find uh, moderately high volume, close to failure, makes you sore for multiple days and it precludes you from doing a very high frequency training program, then don't do that, you know, but you don't have to worry about whether that's because of your fiber type or not. It's one of those things where you just simply kind of respond to that reality and then set up an individualized program based on that. Um, And as a throwback to when we talked about frequency, I think there's a study out now that, or actually it might be 2019, but anyway, it's a study I didn't discuss in our podcast on that, where they used a within subject design. um, So meaning that one leg of the same person was randomized to two different protocols, one being a high frequency protocol, one being a low frequency protocol. And when you looked at the overall group level outcomes, There was no significant difference in hypertrophy between the groups for lower or higher frequency when Hmm. volume was was equated however there was a high degree of within individual variance meaning that at the group level doesn't make a difference but you end of one dear listener might respond better to a higher or lower frequency so that is just one of those examples where something that isn't a big key player when we make broad recommendations out, out to everybody, uh, doesn't mean that it might not make a big difference for you individually. So, and that could be related to fiber type difficult to say.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, it also sparks something up, um, for remembering kind of, I think you mentioned this at one point on some podcasts where, um, talking about how often bodybuilders who like there are bodybuilders who get very, very sore and take a lot of damage from relatively low volumes. Those people mm. often tend to do well. Yeah, I wonder if that has any relation, you know, to the. Probably. Fiber I, I wouldn't be surprised if those people weren't
1: more, more often on the high, on the, on the high proportion of, uh, fast, which fiber spectrum wouldn't surprise me.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any general guidelines of how people should, um, sort of split up their rep ranges? I know that, uh, in. You know the the pyramids you talk about having kind of a majority in in your intermediate sort of rep range and then having some uh, a small amount in other rep ranges absolutely
1: so i think to follow up from some of that kind of broad convergence of evidence uh, and lines of research of why you might want to consider more rep ranges the real proof is in the pudding when we look at some of the training studies and none of them are super super convincing but we basically have like a handful of studies where they compare uh, volume equated groups uh, doing different rep ranges either within week or week to week or in in multiple mesocycles. And there's a number um, where they've compared, say, uh, one group versus the other, and there was no significant difference, but the findings lean in terms of effect sizes, and percent changes towards the group having a little more variety. Mm. Um, so the overall picture of this is you could, Either, you know, have a whole mesocycle devoted to, uh, you know, a, a given rep range, say, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, 5 to 10, or say, you know, 8 to 15, or, or 10 to 20, or something like that. Um, or you can have them uh, diversified within the same session, or within the same week. And there's mm-hmm. data to suggest that wouldn't make a huge difference. There's no reason to think it would. Um, it's not like this is going to interfere with, it, with each other or anything like that. Um, so generally the way I recommend to do it, like you mentioned in the pyramid books is I recommend like, you know, roughly, you know, half to two thirds of your volume in, in most cases should be in that kind of intermediate loading zone. And then, so let's say, you know, eight to 12 and then, uh, the remaining, let, let's say if you've got 50% there, uh, the remaining 25% would be heavier training and the final 25% would be lighter training. And that's a good breakdown. Um, the the like the eight to twelve rep range or the six to fifteen, just kind of that kind of intermediate range, is a good choice for just a lot of exercises. It's typically not too high rep for compounds where you're you're tapping out uh, due to due to cardio metabolic fatigue, uh, and it's typically not too heavy for some single joint movements to where you know tendonitis raises its head or it's just uncomfortable. Um, so that said. Uh, there are certain movements which really lend themselves to certain rep ranges. So one of the things that I typically do is I think of what's the appropriate rep range and proximity to failure for a given movement. So for example, for free weight compound exercises for the lower body, I typically restrict it to like a two to four RIR in most cases. Um, So they're not going all the way to failure. Mm -hmm. And again, that's someone who can actually accurately gauge it. Um, and then I typically like to keep it like 10 reps or lower, because if not, I find that it's just too fatiguing in it and it messes with the quality of the rest of the session. And that's not to say we can't get some 12s and 15s and even 20s in our leg training program, but reserve that for something like a leg press in the slightly higher rep ranges then a leg extension. For example, when you're getting to the, the, like the substantially higher rep ranges, that's the type of perspective I take. Um, and I think you can still then combine that perspective with an overall block that is higher or lower rep. So let's say you were in a, a low rep block, but you had say a, uh, you know, a deadlift, a leg press and a leg extension in the same session on your leg day. So in the low rep block, you might be doing three to five reps on deadlift. That's kind of something where you're doing your heavy training. Um, then on that leg press, you're training in the six to eight rep range. And then on the leg extension, you're in the eight to twelve. If you're to do a high rep block, you just shift them all up one, so it becomes you know it goes from three to five to six to eight, and then it goes from you know uh, six to ten to eight to twelve on the leg press, and the leg extension becomes like twelve to twenty or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And you can kind of alternate between those approaches to give your joints a break, different stimulus, change that exercises, etc.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I really like that yeah approach, and I have a very similar kind of uh recommendation for rep ranges for people i usually say two-thirds in around the six to twelve rep range and then one-third outside of that rep range and then Mm -hmm. um kind of tailoring that by muscle group so like for some people like for myself for example you know for for the chest i really like the lower rep ranges so that extra one-third would more so be in the low Low reps, and then say for side delts, that extra one third would all sort of be in the higher, you know, twelve to twenty rep range kind of thing. But uh yeah, like I, I also, yeah, this has been something I've been wondering about. You know, your thoughts on uh, just periodizing rep ranges across mm-hmm. mesocycles cycles. Um, it sounds like from what you're saying is that you could do it either way. You know, like you could either kind of have a more conjugate method where you kind of have the the that mix in there all the time, or you could make it change over larger timescales. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And um for those who are interested, uh, there was a recently published position stand uh led by Schoenfeld and colleagues. Uh I am one of those colleagues, uh, where it's on our basically consensus statements on hypertrophy training to maximize muscle mass in athletes. Um it's open access if you, you kind of Google that, if you Google like Schoenfeld Helms, Steele, and a few of the other authors, um, you'll, 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 find it and the very last section is periodization. And I was my, um, assignment to, to write that section. And so the interesting thing is you can periodize your hypertrophy training. Uh, and I probably would recommend that you do even with some loose tenets of periodization, but you technically probably wouldn't have to, and you could still get kind of quote unquote optimal results based on the data we have. And actually based on what we see in the trenches, cause not all bodybuilders obviously periodize their training. Um, so, uh, one approach, like I mentioned, and there was a semi-recent study, uh, that showed, uh, you know, alternating, uh, like they had a, a, three-week lead-in period of hypertrophy training, and then they had a strength block, then a hypertrophy block that outperformed a group that just kept their hypertrophy training the whole time. I also mentioned there is a DUP approach that has been shown by Schoenfeld and then another group, which I can't remember the last name on. Uh, That had slightly higher effect sizes. This is the same study that I was referencing earlier in groups that on different days train in different rep ranges for all the exercises versus one group that kept it the same. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there is a periodized versus non-periodized approach kind of following uh, Dr. Squat's uh, old guidelines, uh, Fred Hadfield's approach to where you would try to train across the different rep ranges, um, either doing it for a full week or in every session. So the idea was, is that one group in this study uh, was training every session with a different rep range, kind of like I described. So they go uh, low reps on a compound movement that's free weight, moderate reps on a compound movement that was a machine and then high reps on another exercise, uh, sorry, an isolation exercise. And then the other group would just stick the same exercises, the same number of sets, but in one rep range entirely on a week-to-week basis in like a periodized fashion. So like, you know, uh, light, medium, heavy, light, medium, heavy type deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they found no significant differences between groups uh, in terms of hypertrophy. And there was really no leaning uh, either direction uh, when you look at it now technically training in every rep range in the same session and not changing that over time except for just simply trying to do more reps or increase the load is not periodized um so the the other group was following what we would call a a weekly undulating periodization approach right so the rep ranges change on a weekly basis (laughs) Uh, the other studies i cited earlier in that uh, that would be a periodized group versus a non-periodized group the non-periodized group always had the same rep ranges on every session uh, the other group was following a daily undulating periodized uh, program and then finally that first study where it was like three mesocycles hypertrophy strength hypertrophy that would be a kind of a you know block ish periodization style versus a non-periodized uh, approach what defines a non-periodized approach in the literature is when there's no variation in the loading um and so essentially if you're just pushing for progressive overload, but not changing the loading ranges, not changing the exercises, that's not periodized. Um, And that doesn't necessarily seem to be an issue in in, in that study where we compared WUP to training across the rep ranges in the single session. So I think it's important to point out that just because it's a good idea to, to train across multiple rep ranges, doesn't necessarily mean that therefore you have to periodize your focus on those rep ranges. You could do that within each session. However, ultimately you will end up following a pseudo periodized approach because you'll be doing things like deloads, right? So you might swap out exercises. I don't know anyone in the bodybuilding community who literally just does the same exercises all year round. Um, so even if it's like, yeah, I, I choose you know, these staples and I train in these rep ranges for five months and I do a deload every eight weeks, And then i swap out one or two of my isos and swap one of my compounds and then train slightly lighter or slightly heavier that is still periodized you know in some in some manner so i think ultimately there's no escaping at least some aspects of periodization even if you take that approach where you're just focusing on training hard across the spectrum across different exercises but i do think that's a perfectly valid way of training
0: Mm -hmm. yeah no it's cool to hear about the periodization research i love kind of thinking about this kind of stuff it's like Mm -hmm my like favorite kind of topic but um yeah like i can i can definitely see like i i kind of follow a sort of mixed approach where i really like the idea of having a mix of rep ranges across the workout more so for practical reasons where i find that at the beginning of the workout when you have that intention you have that sort of mental freshness it's it's nice to be able to hit some heavier heavier weight and then later on when you're kind of more mentally fatigued, it's, it's, it's a little bit less daunting to approach a lightweight for high reps. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, I have kind of experimented well with all those styles. And uh, I guess the one kind of downside I've seen with more a more like a regimented periodized form, where like, say, if you were doing a DUP, where one day would be like light day, the other day, heavy day, or and on the light day, say you were exclusively doing, you know, like high reps. I, 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 felt, I always find that uh, kind of that metabolic, um, sort of component builds up throughout the workout. And I uh, like, I've, I find kind of my performance dropping a lot. If, if I say like did all sets of 20, um, but yeah, like, I think that they all kind of can have their applications. And I usually tell people that it's kind of for beginners like less periodization is really necessary. And it you can you can get a lot done in bodybuilding just by having a fairly consistent type of routine. That uh, doesn't vary too much, even, you know, as you mentioned, just by virtue of changing exercises and incorporating deloads, you'll have some form of uh, periodization in place. And I think that at an advanced level, when people start finding, you know, their growth st- stalling and slowing down, then it's worthwhile starting to think about the more advanced, um, styles of periodization. Yeah. Some, yeah. So I was hoping we could switch gears and talk a little bit about proximity to failure for bodybuilding training. So for everyone out there, I know that, uh, Eric just put out a podcast on iron culture, talking about failure training. So make sure you all go check that out, but we're just going to go over briefly some of the concepts here and maybe poke around on a a few specific questions. So yeah, in terms of just starting off this discussion, I think a good first point would be how, how do you usually define failure? Great question. So in the literature
1: and depending on who you're talking to, it's typically defined like two different ways. There's what we would describe as voluntary failure, which is doing the last rep you think you can do uh, and then stopping there, which is what most people think of as failure. Um, and then there is what's called momentary muscular failure, and which is where you actually attempt the repetition that you don't think you can do and you fail so that you actually observe failure. And that's really the only like objective way to say you reached failure is to actually fail on a rep. Um, definitely not something you want to do like on squats alone in the gym without a safety rack <laughs> oh man i um, used to but, do that
0: like when i was a beginner i had I this like miss reps I yeah i have this terrible you know like uh og bench setup with like this whole barbell from my dad it was in our like basement and uh like i'd set up these chemistry textbooks on either side to like catch the weight and I would literally bench to failure every set and just like awkwardly try and place it down. <laughs> yeah, dude. When I, when
1: I first started, I didn't under, I, I always thought if I didn't have my training partner with me, I would be able to make as good of gains because I always did as many reps as I could do. And then one or two more assisted on pretty much everything. So we would just have this like post failure approach Nice. and just for whatever information <laughs> I was exposed to at that time in 04, um, I thought that was like the norm, you know? So it's, it's funny how different perspectives you get over time and how, how the winds shift, but yeah. So I think the most common way of uh, defining failure is doing the last rep you can actually do to the technical standards in the lift. Um, and what that means is, is that everyone's gonna have a different true proximity to failure when they get there based on their ability to gauge, was that really, really the last rep I could have done? Um, and the way we typically uh, prescribe, record, uh, or talk about proximity to failure is with what's called repetitions in reserve, um, or sometimes RPE, which is just kind of the inverse. So a 10 out of 10 RPE is zero repetitions in reserve, zero repetitions in reserve, meaning I couldn't have done any anymore. That's reaching voluntary failure. Uh, if you try to do the rep after that and you get a rep, it just means you're not good at rating RPE uh, or RIR. Uh, if you, you know, then try to attempt that next rep, and you fail during it. You I mean you did a good job of rating that RIR zero, and that rep was was momentary muscular failure, while the previous rep was, you know, voluntary failure or a ten RPE, depending on how you want to define it. So that's what we're talking about, um, and you know, to tie it in with rep ranges, the the interesting thing is that basically it's like seeing the light of an end, at the end of a tunnel. Uh, the, the light becomes brighter and you're more able to distinguish it, the closer you are to it. And the same thing is true of your ability to, to gauge failure. So when we have done studies where we take someone and have them do as many reps as they can <clears throat> to an actual 10 RPE uh, on squats with say 70% of one RM, uh, there's a high variability in how many reps people can do. Some people can do, uh, on the extreme end, like six to eight reps and on the other extreme end, more than 20. Um, hmm. For the people who are doing more than 20 reps on that set their ability to gauge rir at say like five rir or three rir is far less accurate than those who are only going to be doing six to eight reps in that set Um, Mm -hmm. so basically the heavier the load or rather better said more specifically said the fewer reps in a set the easier it is to gauge rir Um, so for example we have data on the squat bench and deadlift and trained males doing the 80% of of one rep max, not 70%, so far fewer reps, and they had almost perfect accuracy engaging how close to failure they were. So if you take trained individuals and you're you're doing not high rep sets, you can gauge failure better. Um, And this tells us something about, okay, well, what about those high rep blocks where it's burning I'm tired. i like you said, I did multiple sets before that and my performance is starting to drop. Uh, motivation becomes problematic. Overall, cardiometabolic fatigue is mounting. It probably means that our accuracy on RIR isn't great during those blocks. Now, if you combine that with some limited data that suggests that when you are training with low loads for high repetitions, that getting close to failure is more important for in stimulating hypertrophy on a per set basis, and with lower loads, we can see a potential problem there where, in a practical setting, those high rep blocks might end up being at a lower proximity to failure than we expected and that we intended. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, you know, does that matter? And many people in the bodybuilding community have this a priori belief that you have to be near to failure. And I don't dispute that, but I think the definition of near to failure is heavily influenced by just what they've been exposed to. Like I said, uh, in my experience, when I first started, it was two failure. And then you only got credit for the reps that were past failure, you know, <laughs> where you needed someone else to help you complete the repetition to really get the most out of your program. And my assumption, my belief based on, geez, I'm not even sure what I read at that time to make me believe that, uh, was that I couldn't even get a full stimulus without a workout partner. Right. Um, However, the research that's coming out is actually in opposition to that. Uh, We have a meta-analysis by uh, Davies and colleagues that suggests there's no significant difference between training to failure or not for hypertrophy when volume is equated. And if you look at studies that were published since, uh, we see very mixed data. Some of that could be because different studies use different definitions of failure. Are they using a momentary or a voluntary definition? Uh, how are they actually gauging failure in their lab? Uh, and also what is the training experience of the participants and then what's the rep range they're training. So it overall converges at the fact that close enough to failure is probably further from failure than we expected previously, or that our intuition would tell us, hmm. um, you probably could be at a three to five RIR for the majority of your training that wouldn't be the end of the world unless you're doing like really high rep work all the time you know mm-hmm. which is why earlier i'm not concerned about doing say six to eight reps at a two to four RIR in a squat or something like that especially when you've got multiple sets and you have like press and leg extension afterwards and things like that um and there's a lot of limitations to this data we don't have a lot of good research on synergists and multiple regions of the same muscle group um one of the things that is proposed and is backed up by some acute data on EMG is that the prime mover might be doing uh, a good solid amount of work on something like a squat or a bench press, so your quadriceps or your pecs, even when you're well far from failure, but you don't really get a good effective stimulus on like say the synergists and the other regions of that muscle until you're closer to failure. That's not been proven definitively, um, but that is certainly a possibility because we don't often measure the hypertrophy in those other muscle groups um so you know how close to failure should you be it's not a, a very specific answer So some people are like i like a two rir and i'm like in what context why when for what exercises you know i think if you're looking for an answer of should i be going to failure or not you're asking the wrong question if you're looking for a specific rir to use on all exercises all the time you're asking the wrong question um really i think we need to pair rir with the rep range the exercise and the phase of training we're in, and think of it as a variable to be progressed. Uh, so, for example, if we go back to that same model of training I talked about earlier, where you could be doing, you know, WUP DUP, a block model, or training everything in the same uh, session, you wouldn't want to go to failure on those earlier exercises because, like you talked about, the same way of doing, you know, high rep sets and generating a lot of fatigue, we know that going close to failure generates a lot of fatigue. So earlier in the session, you probably want to be focusing on being further from failure. And later in the session, you want to get a little closer when you don't have anything else to do for that muscle group. So if we now take, okay, we've got our uh, six to eight rep range on our squat or deadlift. We've got our eight to 12 rep range on our leg press or hack squat afterwards. And then we've got our 12 to 20 rep range on our leg extension or leg curl, right? Mm -hmm. We can pair those rep ranges and exercises within an appropriate RIR. So we probably want to be at like two to four on that compound free weights, heavily fatiguing full body exercise where you can move a lot of load. We can drop that down to say like a one to three RIR on the compound movement uh, that is not free weights. And then finally, we can get down to say like a zero to two RIR. So maybe we start only two two reps from failure on our first set, and we let fatigue accumulate, and we actually do hit failure on our last set. Uh, of that last exercise for that muscle group. And that way you've you've effectively uh, stayed as close to failure as you can uh, without compromising performance within session. And hopefully, depending on, again, your individual characteristics and what type of frequency and time course of recovery you best respond to, enables yourself to then come back sometime that week and, and get the rest of your volume for that muscle group. Because typically, uh, most advanced lifters can't get all the volume they need in an effective manner within one session, as we've talked about previously. So that is kind of... What ends up emerging from this data we have, we don't need to go to failure. If you are doing a very low volume program, you probably would want to go to failure to make sure that every bit of that volume is as effective as you can. And then it doesn't matter if there's a high, you know, time course of recovery. If it takes ninety-six hours for you to fully recover, well, it's fine. You might only be training once per week per muscle group. No big deal. That's kind of like your typical quote-unquote bro split that I don't think has to be bro sciencey. I think you can definitely set up a one times per week body part split that's Probably would be good up to a certain point in your career until you might need more volume. Um, so, like you said, keep it simple when you start. So, anyway, that's kind of my long-winded answer to uh, proximity to failure. Is
0: you need to think about pairings with phase, exercise selection, and rep range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to think about it, and kind of the way I see it is that um, you kind of want to maximize like your area under the curve for each session, and then also across your entire training week and yeah. kind of what you said about ramping up the RER like throughout your workout or lowering your RAR, um is like a good way of doing that because early on you you really want to you know hit those big compound movements but still get a lot of stimulus for them but not destroy yourself for your later session than the rest of your session and especially on you know if you structure it the way we talked about where you have your lower rep stuff earlier and your higher rep more isolation work later on those on those isolation exercises it's less costly to go close to failure like on a lateral raise taking something to failure is a lot uh much of a different story than like deadlifts or something Mm -hmm. um in terms of uh like people talk about the effective reps model where you know they say that um the like kind of sort of stimulus you get will increase as you get closer to failure. What are your thoughts on that? You know, like in the context of what you said about the research saying that there's not that much difference and when like, whether we go to failure or not. Yeah, that's a great
1: question. So I think think the effective reps model is a useful model to understand why we care about proximity to failure. Um, But any version of that model that gives a very specific, well-defined, proximity from failure where it matters and how much it matters relative rep to rep is overreaching beyond what we know and actually if it's let's say uh only the last five reps really stimulate hypertrophy that's in direct opposition to data we have people are stopping short of of that you know they're, they're training to a you know like a four to six rir and getting similar growth to another group that is training close to failure and we do have those studies um, So. Yeah, I think uh, Stephen Box, if I recall correctly, was it George Box? I'm rec- misrecalling. We'll just say uh, Doctor Box, the statistician. <laughs> um, great quote: um, "All models are wrong, but some models are useful." So I think it's 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 a useful model to understand that if you were totally sandbagging, your load is too low. There's no velocity slowdown for any of your repetitions during a set. Um, like this, this appears to be not even the beginnings of a grind. You're probably not doing much. Um, however, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to the other end of that spectrum and train all the way to failure. So I think, <coughs> excuse me, a safe recommendation is that training in a zero to five RIR, depending on phase exercise rep range. How many times you're training that week is, is where the,
0: you should be spending 99, your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good um, way of saying it. And Leah, um, actually coming back, we also talked about how in when you get to the higher rep ranges, you want to be, you know, a little bit more cognizant of coming closer to failure. That zero to five, does that, would, would you say that also applies to like the high rep range, like sets of, you know, 20 to 30?
1: It probably does. But the issue is, is that when you think you're at a five hour RIR, when you're doing 30 reps, you're probably not. So your ability to gauge like, man, just think about any time you've done high rep leg extensions, they start burning 12 reps in almost regardless of the load, right? So if you're loading your 15 RM and you do your 12th rep, or if you're loading your 25 RM and you're doing your 12th rep and both make you want to stop that should tell you something about your ability to gauge failure there. So I think uh, you probably want to train more like that zero to two RIR on high rep sets, um, just because you don't want to accidentally be at a five to R, which, which can really happen even in train lifters, especially if they're not accustomed to high reps and if they're not accustomed training to failure. Um, so that's, that's just something I think we have to face up to. Um, that's why doing twenty rep sets on squats, you know, I've talked about Widowmakers jokingly many times. Um, <laughs> they're hard, kind of regardless of what you load, and those are never intended to go to failure. And they're still considered like, oh my god, you know. So mm-hmm. I think we just have to be cognizant of that. So you probably do want to train closer to failure when you're doing higher reps. And again, this is one of those reasons why you wouldn't just want to always train high rep uh, because it can be just that that mentally fatiguing. Uh, and and physically fatiguing as well, Um, all of that metabolic fatigue accumulates uh, and it can actually trigger um, some central fatigue mechanisms, which can reduce performance, which is probably what you were anecdotally observing in your own training. So yeah, we need to be cognizant of that. So if there are these kind of requirements, like when we shift towards one end of the loading range, we have to consider how that's going to affect, you know, the long run. So, which is why you probably do want to periodize it if you're gonna use a lot of high rep training.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also liked how you talked a bit about earlier about how, you know, for, we don't know very much about kind of the synergists and, and how those come into play. And when you, when you start getting closer to failure, you start just engaging, you know, other muscles. And I think that for a beginner uh, or especially someone who doesn't have a lot of time in the gym, um, it can be like a fish, an efficient way to train. And, hmm. you know, like when we talk about failure training, I think a lot in the, in the science space sphere, we're kind of referring to people who are like, quote unquote, optimally optimize their training, you know, like they have basically as much time as they want in the gym and that kind of stuff. But for a lot of people, you know, they're only in the gym a couple, two or three times a week. And uh, for like, a, for those people, I usually do recommend that they have trained fairly close to failure and actually trained to failure pretty regularly. Um, just because it's a very efficient way of making sure that you get the most out of your sets.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a trade off there where if you do a set of 10, uh, to failure, or if you do a set of eight with that, um, the set of 10 might elongate the, the relative amount of fatigue you get from that. Disproportionately, just doing two less reps. You did 80% of the work, but you might have added the full day of recovery um, if you were to take a whole session and do it like that. Now, if you're only training three times a week, non issue. And that is a worthwhile return on investment. However, <clears throat> if it was hypothetically better for you to get in a whole extra session, but being short of failure, that's where the the bodybuilder goes yeah I would do that but the person interested in in training but who only has three days a week to train goes well I can't do that so it's not a matter of what's more optimal it's a matter of what is the best way to optimize within the constraints of your training schedule Um, so I think that's a a really astute thing you pointed out and I actually so in the most recent uh, mass issue that's just coming out on the 1st of September I did part two of a video series on the minimum effective training dose um so this is coming out just in i think four days or five days from when we're recording this i'm not sure when this is going to get dropped but anyway um it'll be the most recent mass issue for anyone who's a subscriber in that video i give video examples of the minimum effective training dose for a trained lifter who would actually hope to at least maintain or maybe even make very slow progress uh, with hypertrophy or one that actually should produce progress for the average trained person but does not optimal progress but with the least time of, time investment so like a time efficient uh training program and then like a true med minimum effective dose and the med one is two 25 minute workouts a week that's it nice and then the one that is time efficient that actually i think would actually produce hypertrophy in most people is three times a week around 20 to 30 minutes per session, so we're talking about maybe being able to get all your training done in the week in an hour if you're in good shape, maybe an hour and 10, 15, 20 minutes if if you need to take a longer rest periods. And it's using things like drop sets, supersets, antagonist paired training, um, a few sets, training to failure, uh, and really focusing on like compound movements uh, to get it done because we have data to back all those things up, and I think people just If you, if you've been listening to a lot of, um, scientific based training protocols for physique athletes to optimize their training, and you're not necessarily a physique athlete, uh, trying to optimize their training, but just looking for the best information. We very rarely talk about, uh, what, what does it take in terms of a, the best return on investment to make pretty good gains. Um, so you might be under the impression that you're spending at least four hours a week in the gym, you know, on the low end and in reality. You might be able to get ninety percent uh, of it spending an hour a week in the gym for at least the first couple of years of your training career. So I think that is something that um, most people are just maybe they, they're they're aware of it on paper if they're presented with all the data. It's not new information, but they just haven't really thought about what is the true time investment for me to get say six to eight sets per muscle group at a high intensity per week. It's really not much, uh, especially if you let compounds take care
0: of the synergists. Mm-hmm yeah no yeah that's i'm glad that you guys kind of talked about the like more efficient ways of training because i think that uh a lot of people will benefit from that you know since people are within the constraints of their their allotted time um to zoom in and get really academic here um the i guess a common uh, or like question that will come up in the advanced world is you know with volume and intensity or proximity to failure, you have kind of a trade-off where as you, as you train more close to failure, you are not able to complete as much productive volume. So let's say within sort of the, the zone that we're talking about, like zero to five to five RIR, let's say theoretically someone were to spend most of their time in the, the, the less intense version of that, like four to five RIR and do more volume compared to someone who is maybe staying in sort of like one to two RIR and doing less volume, what's your, you know, hot take on what would be optimal?
1: Yeah. It depends on how less and how more we're talking about, like there are certain ranges where I don't think it would make a difference to the average trainee, but it might be better for the individual kind of going back to that same thing with the frequency thing. So for example, let's say, um, you had someone doing 10 sets to failure from your muscle group in a week, and you had another person. Training primarily in the three to five RIR range and doing 20 sets in an actual three to five RIR. So they are like, if they had done three or five more reps, they would have hit failure. Um, I don't think there would be a difference on average. Like, if we ran a, a large multi site training study on trained individuals, I don't think we'd see significant differences between groups. Um, however, if we had If we looked at any individual in that study and we made it a crossover so that they were exposed to both i think we'd still not see significant differences between groups but we'd see some individuals who grew much better in one situation than the other so and that's probably why we see or at least one of the reasons why we see these uh very dogmatic camps in bodybuilding because someone who finds that when they went from a high volume approach to a lower volume approach with uh, you know, very high, or I should say very low proximity to failure being very near failure. They started making gains They broke some plateaus and they, they transformed their physiques while someone else maybe saw the opposite. Um, and like, this is a, an anecdote I've experienced directly for myself. So like, for example, Jeff Alberts typically trains with six to 10 sets per muscle group. And he takes all of the sets to like a zero to two RIR for the most part back in 2000, I wanna say the off season after 2011, it was either off season 2011 or off season 2010, I can't remember. Uh, I was living in Sacramento, so I was only a 45 minute drive away from him. So I went on an upper lower split with him uh, and I just drove to his house and we trained together and I took most of my sets to failure. And we did like kind of a a modified like heavy duty type approach, you know? and I actually saw decreases in size in my upper body while he was, you know, trucking along making great gains. My lower body continued to respond. I think I hit like a lifetime RDL PR during that time period, and my legs were looking good. But I like, and Jeff would con- confirm this. It, so it wasn't just all in my head. He was like, "Yeah, I, I don't think you should do this. Like your loads are going down slowly. You've actually lost some size." So um, I, that that's just one example where you know I personally find that when I'm doing 12 to 20 sets per muscle group in the upper body. Um, that's, that's the appropriate amount. Um, and that's when I, I can, I can maintain or see progress depending on, you know, what muscle group I'm focusing on at the time, nutrition stuff, you know, all the other variables. So yeah, I, I'm one of those people who doesn't respond well to low volume, at least from the waist up. Um, and Jeff is, is not that, and if you take, give him any decent amount of volume, um, he gets pretty wrecked pretty quick and it elongates his recovery time. So I th- think, yeah, like it's very understandable that if we were to take science out of the equation, Jeff would still be a, you know, a low volume proponent and I would be a, like a moderate to high volume proponent. We'd be arguing on the internet. Um, but instead we are coaches in the same company who have a more diverse skill set to work with the wide variety of people who ask for our help, uh, which is ultimately what we want to get to.
0: So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah no that's awesome yeah like that's exactly my kind of theory at this point where i think that you know you can kind of look at volume and the proximity to failure as you know multiplying and creating this product of some component of stimulus and i think that for different people they will respond better to one end of the camp you know within Mm -hmm. within kind of the limits that we're talking about and the more you know um reasonable ranges of that but i Yeah. Like I just, you know, also like one or
1: more, Mm -hmm. one or the other more. And I think the reason why a very like close to failure type of training is so popular in bodybuilding is because we, we, we pray to the, the, the willpower God, you know, that's the one thing all bodybuilders have in common. And we know that's what it takes to get on stage. Um, you know, we love things like blood and guts, the black and white animal pack ads, We love stories of uh, personal responsibility and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and the grind and don't get me wrong, like those are like having grit is an incredibly important part of, of bodybuilding, so I think. It's not surprising to me at all that training paradigms that require more of that and tap into it are you know, inherently psychologically rewarding for people. And I don't don't say that as a a knock and saying like, see your programs don't actually work that well, you just love them. No, I'm saying you probably wouldn't be able to put in the same level of consistency and high quality of work if you weren't training in a way that you liked. So, you know, the good news is maybe what you're doing is perfectly fine. Just, Just take a look at it. Like if you're really low volume, really high effort, maybe consider, you know, moderating it slightly. Um, but I think anytime you don't enjoy your training, it sort of doesn't matter if it's, if it's not quote unquote evidence-based cause you're taking some of the juice out of it. So, you know, maybe you're still going to be on one side of the spectrum, but identify that there is a spectrum that is still within the range.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good uh, point as well that, you know, you got to enjoy your training and, uh, as this one short little medical plug for anyone out there who's, you know is the one of the puker types or the pukers as we used to call them when we were on track i recommend against puking regularly it's not good for your you know the the mucosa of your throat but you know very common thing in bodybuilding um oh yeah and one more question uh was that you know along the kind of lines of uh, argue arguments for you know failure training so, yeah, one of the benefits we mentioned is that you can, um, increase the, uh, efficiency of your training if, if, someone is very short on time, but, uh, the other thing was kind of just having it there as a check of your, mm. your RIR. What's your recommendation for that for beginners who are starting out and don't have a good sense of RAR? Absolutely.
1: Something I do recommend the, um, we're actually working on a paper right now that's talking about methodological reporting errors, consistency, and the best way to run training studies when you care about proximity to failure. And one of the things we recommend is anchoring what a zero RIR is so that your participants are more likely to be there. So basically you bring them into the lab before the study starts, you have them do the exercises, they're going to be in your study and you have them trained to failure and you go, right. So that rep was a zero RIR and that was that was the last one you you were able to do the one after that, obviously, you know, because we spotted you, that was failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And that concept would, of course, apply in the trenches as well. And it is a, it's, it's a brave new world because Bill, when I first started, like I said, I had been training past failure for the first six months to maybe eight months of my career. And then I te- tempered it a little bit and I was only training to failure, <laughs> but I wouldn't do free weight movements where I could get hurt like squats or incline press ever without a spotter. And now I regularly train without a spotter because I don't, I don't need it. And I'm not, unless I'm attempting a new max, I, I just, I'm too experienced, you know, so that is not necessarily the experience of people coming into it, it blows my mind to this day that some people actually are coming into resistance training and maybe the first actual training book or recommendation they read could be something that includes RIR or RPE. So if you start your training without actually knowing what a zero RIR is, you're probably always going to be short of it. You're more likely to underestimate it. So I do think it's important to to probably at some point and maybe primarily using machines Um, just so for a safety factor and so you can hit everything go through a failure training block use the very low end or maybe even 80 percent of the low end of the volume recommendations um you know and and take every set that you do for maybe a full four weeks to failure and i think that would be a really good way to anchor uh what your rirs are so you're not out there going yep that was eight rpe when it was actually a five
0: Mm -hmm. yeah no i think that's yeah that's a really sound uh Practice. I think that just having some component at some point where, um, for me, I'll you I'll often recommend that uh, even if people don't necessarily believe that much in failure training, that they include it at some point in their block. What um, easiest place to do it would be in the last, you know, the last workout of your of your uh, muscle cycle. So like when you're about to deload the next week, um, taking some sets to failure and kind of getting that check. Um, yep. There's a lot of
1: ways to do that. Like, I think, um, if I, I, don't want to misquote them, but I'm pretty sure Mike has mentioned from RP Renaissance periodization, Mike Isretel, that they have like a, uh, a decreasing RIR approach, so like three, two, one, zero. So like at the end of every meso cycle before the deload, uh, they get to go to failure and they can see like, oh shit, I thought I was at a failure and I did another rep, you know? So you get that, that exposure to kind of keep that, that, that short sword sharp, if you will. Um, I think that's, that's many ways to get it done. It could be something you periodize in and out, or it could be something that you do intermittently or, you know, lots, lots of, lots, so long as you have the
0: skill, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The skills, the skills of bodybuilding, you know, I think, right. I feel like RIR is one of those kinds of, uh, skills that, uh, ex, you know, experienced bodybuilders are very proud of, you know, along with counting eyeballing macros. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's why we cut our chops. So <laughs> So yeah. Anyways, that was a really great discussion and, uh, just wrapping up here on a fun question, one, one actually, but, one thing yeah. I wanted to add bill that I, I just remembered yeah. is, um, the,
1: where the tension curve, uh, is in relation to muscle length is something to consider as well. So in RDL, uh, the hardest point is when the the, the bar is the furthest from the, from, from the, uh, from the fulcrum. And that is at the bottom. And that's a very long muscle length for your hamstrings. That's a great example of something that always makes you sore, right? Mm -hmm. Um, muscles that, so, so, uh, movements that do that. another example is most squats and, and leg presses. If you're doing a full range of motion, the hardest portion at the bottom is when your quad is the most stretched. Um, uh, and there are many other examples like flies, you know, when it is most difficult when your arms are far out to the side, uh, those are exercises where even if you don't train to failure, they make you pretty sore um and those probably are going to produce more of attention stimulus to some degree even if you are reasonably far from failure at least in the in the muscle group that is stretched so for movements like that i generally recommend uh stopping a little shorter of failure or you can just really elongate it like i wouldn't recommend doing three sets of rdls to failure because even if you were used to rdls you're probably gonna be sore for multiple days and if you're not used to rdls you'll be sore for multiple weeks in some cases so that's another just one minor thing to include in there
0: uh so consider exercise selection as well for that reason Mm -hmm. yeah no that's really interesting actually i think that uh there are a lot of facets to consider about these stretch movements that uh yeah like we we wouldn't normally just think about when we're just starting out but uh yeah like considering the exercise selection in your RER choice So yeah, just wrapping up, I'll just take a question from, uh, Instagram. Actually, someone asked, uh, where do you see yourself and the fitness industry in five years?
1: Ah, I don't think it's going to be that different in five years. Um, for me, I will have, it'll have been my honor to have a number of my PhD students complete their studies. And I'll be actually collaborating with them as colleagues as they are working somewhere, uh, which is pretty pretty cool. I look forward to that. Um, I really enjoy mentoring people. I'll be getting back on stage in 2023. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And as far as the fitness industry, um, I think there's gonna be more and more and more information. um, And I think people are going to have to get better and better at uh, discerning what is high quality information versus what is not. I've noticed that when I first started, evidence-based information was primarily about simplifying things. Like the approaches that I followed when I first started were needlessly complex. Like you can't combine fats and carbs. You can't eat after six. Here's a limited list of foods that are allowed. These foods do this thing that's bad. These foods do this thing that's bad. Um, And I found myself having to complicate my life, eating hours making sure I had the right kind of uh, carbohydrate post-training, but different carbohydrates at other time, thinking about my, uh, my, like the insulin response at different times, whether I was even accurate or not. So worry about the GI of foods, all that stuff. So when I got exposed to evidence-based information, It greatly simplified my life, but I think now I've noticed there's a lot of people who feel that trying to keep up with the evidence-based information is complicating their lives. There's too much information, at least that's their perspective, and they don't have the skill set to be able to differentiate uh, what are the, the big rocks from the medium rocks to the small rocks. So, I mean, that's something that I've been trying to focus on in my career. The whole concept of the pyramids is about identifying priorities. Um, but I do think that if we want to get greater engagement in, uh, science, in the fitness community, more people are going to have to think in those terms instead of just, I got to keep up with, uh, you know, the, the the pace of social media, which is not going to slow down and have content every day. And I need to make those big headlines. I got to make people think this is important. So I think we need to consider that to move forward in a healthy way where we're actually helping people.
0: Yeah, no. Wow. Interesting point. Yeah. Like, I think that the, you know, the advent of social media has really complicated the information space where a long time ago, you know, the only, the only way you could have gotten your ideas out was to actually have a publisher and actually have some sort of review process where nowadays, you know, anyone can put out a PDF online or start, you know, start a podcast or, or post their ideas on the net. So, yeah, it becomes a lot trickier for people to who who may not have the scientific background or experience to be able to um, sift through that information. And that being said, my dear listener, you have obviously, you know, come come off to a good start in finding this podcast and listening to Eric Helms. So with that, yeah, thanks so much for being on the show again, Eric. And uh, I'll be linking your uh, links in the My description. Below. Mm-hmm. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one on one coaching. I'm not cheap. But if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.